What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show. The next great band you need to hear, the Besnard Lakes, live in the studio. Plus, I'll have a Desert Island jukebox pick at the end of the show that ties into our first news story. We're here live at Lollapalooza 2007 in Grant Park on the lakefront of Chicago. Third annual festival on the lakefront, Jim. One of the biggest festivals in North America is about to wind up its third day. We're here in the middle of a steaming hot Sunday afternoon. I think we got about 200% humidity. The thunderstorms are threatening. The only thing worse than baking in the sauna would be getting drenched. That's what Um, happened to Patti Smith last night. She got drenched. You know, we're here because we have to cover this for the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Tribune. They've got a five-year, $5 million contract to bring Lollapalooza to Grand Park. 130 bands, nine stages, headliners including Daft Punk, Pearl Jam, Interpol, Muse, Femi Kuti. Who played to an underwhelming crowd of 2,000. Cafe Tacuba. We're going to get back to the studio, and God, I can't wait for air conditioning (laughs) to really dissect whether this thing is a success or not, because I think it affects people across the country. What does it say about the future of the concert industry? The Destination Festival, Coachella, Bonnaroo, Lollapalooza, any of the big European festivals like Reading, are, according to some, the future of the live music industry. Absolutely. We'll be back in the studio to give you the best of what happened on those nine stages. There's a little bit of an LCD sound system paying homage to uh, the band that was going to follow it a few seconds later. Daft Punk is playing in my house. That was certainly a highlight for me of Lollapalooza. What were your highlights all weekend? There were several, Jim. I I, I thought there was uh, good performances every day, uh, memorable performances, but I think the snapshot, the memory, everything else will be forgotten in 20 years but one performance, and that was by Iggy Pop and the Stooges. Absolutely right. Uh, When you have hundreds of people on stage with you, a near riot breaking out in the middle of this very, (laughs) you know, know, let's face it, it's a very corporate type of festival, and all of a sudden you have this uh, moment of chaos, this moment of spontaneity breaking out in the middle of this festival. Here's Iggy Pop, one of the most iconic, divisive figures in rock history. And to see him playing underneath the city skyline yeah. in the middle of a Sunday afternoon and all these kids basically, you know, just bum-rushing the stage in the middle of his set. He invited the audience <laughs> up during No Fun. No fun to be alone. Yeah.
and they overwhelmed security and swamped the stage. He never lost control, though. Yep. It was a great celebratory moment, and when the song was over, without ever saying, please leave the stage now, he got people to calmly leave. Yeah. There's something great about rock and roll when it teeters just on the edge of being out of control, when you, you're a little frightened and you're exhilarated. You don't know what's going to happen next. And in kind of the shopping mall environment yeah. that Lollapalooza is in 2007, it's rare to have that kind of exhilaration. Yeah, it's sort of uh, working this uh, fine line uh, between this very structured, very carefully managed event and a rock show. And, and the carefully managed event is winning out. I've got to say, in terms of just the way the fans were treated... Lollapalooza was a successful event. I've been to most of the big rock festivals in America. For the most part, there are long lines for food, there are long lines for water, there are long lines for bathrooms, long waits to get into the festival and out of the festival. From that standpoint, Lollapalooza was a very well-managed affair on a lot of levels. Logistically, they did a good job. I think my big issues with the festival, Jim, and I think with the festivals in America in general, are aesthetic ones. What is the point here? Are we throwing a bunch of bands in a big field? To what point? I mean, well, what, the point is what to are we attract, trying to do here? The point is to attract 60,000 people who are then a demographic group who can be advertised to. Yeah. You know, Grant Park, uh, Petrillo Banchel, for more than a century, has been named after the man who started the National Musicians Union. This weekend, it bore the name of a corporation. That's just wrong. You know, it's just an aesthetic wrong. But I disagree with you in, to some extent. There were a big issue this year, and it was in your coverage, in my coverage, in everyone's coverage, there were these huge VIP areas. Cabanas were sold for up to $75,000 for a, uh, a party of, of uh, 75 of your friends. And there were these VIP areas where tickets were $850. You had to buy them in a pair, $1,700. The average kid paid $195, and he was treated fairly well. He for three she, days. For three days. Treated fairly well. He's standing in a dusty softball field. He's looking at the shaded cabanas with the lounge chairs, <laughs> the waiters and waitresses, the wine bar, the massage tent, and the special, not the porta potty, right? The special trucked in trailers that are air conditioned and wood paneled and have running water and baby wipes and flowers, right? <laughs> and if that area of the park in each of those main fields hadn't been set aside for the VIPs, kids could have had three or four square feet of grass and put down a blanket and sat in the shade. And some of the best areas of Grant Park were given away, uh, sold <laughs> for top dollar to the rich people. I had a problem with that, and I asked Perry Farrell about it. He's still the spokesman. He's still a co-owner of this. Are you saying that you don't like rich people because yeah. they happen to be rich? Well, well, that's yeah. screwed. I think it's undemocratic. What did Lenin say? What are you people, talking about? Democracy is based on capitalism. Your... And if you don't have capitalism, you have communism. And capitalism is going to help the world because, right. you, because you have the right to take the money out of your pocket and say, I don't agree with you. Like, I don't agree with foreign oil and I'm not going to use foreign oil. I'm going to take my money, my capitalistic dollar, yeah. and put it down here. And all the people that come here are putting their money down saying, I like it here. So I don't know what you're on about. Fair comment. Thank you. All right. Thank you. I agree with Perry Farrell. As long as he's not giving away the real estate in front of the stage where the kids are. You know what most of those kids are, are doing? They're looking over at those schlubs at the cabanas who paid $75,000 and laughing at them. As long as he puts them where they are, off to the side, lets the kids have the best view of the stage, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. If he can subsidize with that two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000 they are getting from those essentially luxury skyboxes, the equivalent of a luxury skybox. At a, at a rock event, festival, yeah. Uh, you know, put that back into the festival, get another prime headliner out of it. I don't have a problem with that at all. 
Lollapalooza is just joining the pack. Everybody's doing that these days. But you've been to Coachella. I interviewed over the weekend three dozen people who've been to Coachella. Yeah. And they were all saying to me, yes, the corporate presence is there, but it's not as in your face as it is at Lala. But the corporate presence did a better festival than at Coachella. Lala? I okay. had a, I you think Lala's a better festival? I had a, it was better run. Lollapalooza was better run than Coachella. Mm. Coachella's been around longer, and I got to say, the way they treated the fans there, it's not right. Waiting for 20 minutes, half an hour for a meal at 6 o'clock. There were no waiting lines for decent food at Lollapalooza at 6 o'clock. Waiting for water, waiting for bathroom facilities. That stuff shouldn't happen. I talked to probably 100 people over the weekend. Not one person said, man, I'm having a crappy time. I'm feeling like I'm ripped off. At the same time, nobody felt like they did at the Pitchfork Music Festival several weeks ago in Chicago or at the original Lollapaloozas that Perry Farrell was indeed a visionary and a genius for creating. There was a sense of community there of I'm at a special event that is a one-of-a-kind thing, and I don't know if Coachella, Bonnaroo, Lollapalooza in 2007 are succeeding in that. You know, if you were at Lala in 93, you felt like, I'm at the center of the universe as far as the cutting edge of music. You never felt that as you wandered the grounds of Lollapalooza in in 2007. You felt like, I'm kind of at a shopping mall. It's like Old Country Buffet. Yeah. I'm going to get a little chocolate pudding, and then I'm going to have some spaghetti, and then I'm going to have some Chinese egg rolls. Yeah, and, and you know, after a while, you, you're starting to think, okay, what's the difference between Glastonbury and Coachella and Lollapalooza and Bonnaroo? They're basically doing the same thing. I would love to see more of an artistic vision uh, applied here. They had a chance to do it on Friday night. We were talking about this before the show, Jim. You brought up a great point. Daft Punk was playing with LCD sound system. How about a house music tent with Frankie Knuckles as part yeah. of that? So you have sort of this sense of, okay, here's the history of dance music in one place, right. you know, on one field and one day in Chicago, and that would have been a beautiful thing. It would have drawn a very committed audience. It would have drawn an audience that says, we're seeing a little bit of history here. LCD was great. I saw a lot of great stuff. Rhymefest, Lupe Fiasco, two mm-hmm. rappers from uh, Chicago. Uh, uh, Rocky Erickson was amazing. We're going to talk about him in the show in a couple of weeks. I think those were my tops. Uh, you know, Jim, I think there was probably uh, anywhere from a half dozen to a dozen things each day that caught my ear, and I thought, this is pretty cool. And some things that I thought were just simply extraordinary. Uh, you know, Patti Smith's performance, Cafe Tacuba, LCD Sound System. Pearl Jam was great. Rocky Erickson, yeah, Daft Punk, uh, once in a... A lifetime performance with that huge pyramid, you know, in the middle of the in in the middle of the stage. I would like to see a more focused event. I'd like to f- see fewer bands. We don't need yeah. 130 bands. That's I'd like too to see much. fewer stages, fewer bands, a little bit more focused event, curating it. My main gripe is aesthetic. Greg, there's at least one person who doesn't think uh, Marilyn Manson's ways of doing business is all that beautiful. His uh, former guitarist, Stephen Beer, the guy who played under the name Madonna Wayne Gacy, (laughs) filed a suit against him last week saying that Manson owes him $20 million in shared band profits because the whole time they were playing together, Manson was saying the band wasn't making any money, but he was taking band income to buy stuff like a $2 million home, a collection of Nazi paraphernalia, and a handbag once owned by Hitler's mistress, Eva Braun, which was given to uh, uh, Manson's fiance. He also, according to the lawsuit, bought uh, African masks made of human skin, the skeleton of a four-year-old Chinese girl, and the oh. skeleton of a 17th century guy in a wheelchair. Oh, my God. Um, Manson was not denying uh, any of this. The thing that he was upset about is said, uh, 
I would never spend my money on a Chinese girl skeleton. That would be crossing the line. It's a Chinese boy, for the record. <laughs> it's where, not even... where do you even get a 17th century male in a wheelchair? The eBay? Skeleton. I oh, don't know. Oh, my I, God. It, this is like Halloween early in August. <laughs> the other story w- w- that had to be noted is that Adolf Hitler's record collection was just revealed to the public. Apparently, a Russian military intelligence officer had picked it up in the bunker in 1945 when Berlin was liberated by the Russians from one side, the Americans from the other. It's been kept in in hiding all these years, and his daughter has just revealed it to the German magazine Der Spiegel. So what did Hitler listen to on on his Victrola? I mean, you know, this is a morbid story, but but, but fascinating nonetheless. Wagner, which is no surprise at all, you know, Wagner was was, uh, embraced by the Nazi party. Mussorgsky? That's kind of a surprise. I mean, that's a Russian composer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tchaikovsky? Sergei Rachmaninoff? And uh, most curious of all, a Jewish uh, musician and composer uh, from Austria, Arthur Schnabel, who had to leave Germany in 1933. Fascinating stuff in a sick, sick way. Uh, Jim, there's a lot of thoughts swimming in my head right now about what kind of bands he might be listening to today if he were alive, but I'm just going to leave it lie right where it is. Yeah, probably best. Sir Elton John has been published in The Sun, the London newspaper, and he has gone on one of his... uh, It seems like Elton goes on a rant about once every two weeks. He's a cranky old (laughs) coot, isn't he? He really is. Uh, This time he's going off on the Internet. The Internet has stopped people from going out and being with each other, creating stuff. Instead, they sit at home and make their own records, which is sometimes okay, but it doesn't bode well for a long-term artistic vision. Well, for one thing, Elton is dead wrong, because uh, if anything, the Internet has increased the amount of collaboration that is uh, possible through music. I mean, people are sending files back and forth across continents every day uh, adding bits and pieces to music and, and collaborating on things. So he's wrong about the fact that it's actually decreased the amount of collaboration. So here's Elton's prescription for solving this uh, incredibly bad state of affairs that we're in. I do think it would be an incredible experiment to shut down the whole Internet for five years and see what sort of art (laughs) is produced over that span. He goes on to say, in the early 70s, there were at least 10 albums released every week that were fantastic. Now you're lucky to find 10 albums a year of that quality. Wow. Do the math on that. Is that possible that there were 10 albums a week? That's 520 great albums released every year in the 70s. Okay. That's what Elton says, and he says there aren't even 10 a year now released. I remember, like, quality. Captain and Tennille records and stuff, too, in between. You I know. remember some Elton records that uh, yeah. wouldn't qualify for that. So, uh, this is a guy who barely sold 100,000 copies of his last album. I think he's very upset about that. He's uh, been on record as saying that uh, the downloading of his music is killing his sales, and uh, I think this is the next step. Hey, you know, I hate this thing. I hate this little machine that's sitting yeah. on my desk. Get rid of it. Uh, we don't need it anymore. All due respect, Sir Elton, I think this suckiness of your music is killing your sales. Are you ready, Boots? Start walking. Greg, sad story. We have an obituary to do here. Uh, Lee Hazelwood died uh, a couple days ago. He was 78 years old. He'd been fighting cancer. 
uh, an American legend and a real musical treasure. Always going to be best known probably for producing and writing that song, These Boots Are Made for Walking, for uh, Nancy Sinatra. But I played his recent music just last week when mm-hmm. we were doing the Buried Treasure show. He had made what he called, uh, appropriately enough, a farewell album, Cake or Death, which was really cool. He'd been rediscovered in a big way in recent years. In fact, uh, Steve Shelley, the uh, drummer for Sonic Youth, uh, put out some of Hazelwood's uh, solo albums, reissued them on his record label. He made three albums with uh, Nancy Sinatra in, in the 60s. He made a number of albums on his own as what was called a, a psychedelic cowboy. <laughs> uh, he, he was a trip. They were strange records, but with this deep baritone voice of a guy who was raised in Texas, born in Oklahoma. He had come out of retirement a couple of years ago at the behest of Nick Cave to headline a festival in Europe. He was much loved by the rock underground, I think, uh, over three or four decades. Yeah, absolutely. Produced uh, the early hits of Dwayne Eddy, uh, was the guy who signed and basically discovered Graham Parsons, put out his yeah. uh, his first record with the International Submarine Band. And uh, as you said, the solo records are, are collector's items. Uh, people love uh, just a really outsider figure throughout his music career. But uh, the song we're going to play next, I think, uh, Jim, really sums up uh, what made this guy great. Yeah, actually, when he was re- recording with Nancy Sinatra, he didn't have any intention of singing at all. And it was Nancy who kept kicking him with her boots, right, to say, you know, sh- sing with me, sing with me. She wanted his voice on her records. Some Velvet Morning is, uh, is their most famous duet, and it's a fitting tribute to Lee Hazelwood, dead at 78. Some velvet morning when I'm straight I'm gonna open up your gate And maybe tell you about Phaedra And how she gave me life And how she made Some Velvet Morning from Lee Hazelwood duetting with Nancy Sinatra. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, the Besnard Lakes, live in the studio. No. 
listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Mr. Greg Cott, and we are here with the members of Besnard Lakes. Steve, Olga, Jace, Rich, Kevin, welcome. Hi. Thank you. Thanks. We're actually missing our keyboard player, Nikki. She had to go back to Montreal? Yeah, she had to go back to Montreal to finish a piano composition, so... We're, wow! Yeah, we're 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 a couple keyboards down tonight. Yeah, we've been getting hurt by these classical day jobs lately. Exactly. Because Peter Bjorn and John came, but without John. Without John, he had to go oh. tour with the orchestra in Stockholm or something. So maybe wow. John and Nikki are having an affair. <laughs> Could be. Uh, we are talking to the Besnard Lakes, who are a band from Montreal, Canada, a city that's been in the news a lot lately because there seem to be a lot of great bands coming out of Montreal lately. We're going to get to that. But second album, the Besnard Lakes are the dark horse. We've been talking about it on the show for a number of months, and uh, they're now on tour. You guys have been touring. This is the second major swing through the U.S., I think, correct, for this record? Yeah, the first one was sort of like to get us back up to Canada after South by Southwest. Well, before we uh, get into your background, let's, uh, why don't we start off with a song? Tell us what we're going to hear first. I think we're going to do On Bedford and Grand first. Well, we could, oh, 
On Bedford and Grant from the uh, new Besnard Lakes record, the Besnard Lakes are the dark horse. Let's talk a little bit about the history of the band. Jace and Olga, you are kind of the founding members of the band and came to Montreal in 99 from Vancouver before Montreal was a name on everyone's lips. So you guys were, you guys didn't go there just to be cool. You went there to play music <laughs> before <laughs> Montreal was considered the new Athens uh, or the new Seattle or the new whatever. Actually, it's kind of funny uh, as a backstory. Jason and I kind of, we were going to decide between Montreal and Chicago. <laughs> really? <laughs> and we yeah, chose right. Montreal. Yeah. Just because, you know, staying in the country, it'd be kind of hard, like, leaving Canada. And, yeah. You well, know, and we they speak French in familiar. Montreal. There's <laughs> very little French in Chicago. <laughs> we should say that you guys are husband and wife, Jason Olga. Yeah. 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 Were you in bands separately before you got married, or did you meet through bands? How did that happen? I met Olga through a friend. Um, Olga was actually playing on stage in another band in Vancouver one night and I was going to art school and uh, a friend of mine was friends with Olga and she's like let's go down to see this band and uh, Olga was playing bass and I was enamored mm. <laughs> <laughs> smitten mm. by her bass playing or yes yeah, a little bit of both actually <laughs> so you moved to Montreal with the express purpose of taking your career forward a step and then how did the rest of the group come together volume one your first album came out in 2003 appropriately titled volume one yeah part of the impetus was to move to montreal was partly because of being in a band but also because uh we wanted to start a recording studio so uh in 2003 we had the studio sort of started and you know everything was set up so olga and i just went into the studio and put the record together ourselves and then we formed a band after I guess around I guess late two thousand four two thousand five this came together and then we uh, started making the new record Dark Horse. Is there a danger, guys, between owning Break Glass Studio and and playing the band together and playing all these other? Is there ever a danger of like we have no life but music? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I don't even want. I just want to go somewhere where there isn't any sound at all. Is that where the Besner Lake comes in? Yes, exactly. We're actually going there next month for. Five days of no sound, just loon calls. <laughs> let's let's talk about that. So this is a uh, this is a lake in Canada, very yes. rustic. Yeah, it's a lake in uh, rural northern Saskatchewan. I, I was born in Regina, Saskatchewan. It's on the prairies, and uh, Besner Lake is a place that me and me and my friend Chris Gardner used to go to, and uh, it's just this giant lake with a lot of islands, and we just go there to sort of get away from civilization. Is it a songwriting inspiration? Sometimes it can be, but usually it's just a way to have a lot of alcoholic beverages. <laughs> <laughs> Which can be an inspiration in itself. Yeah, we, we don't get Indeed. to do that touring, so yeah. it's nice to take a vacation <laughs> yeah, and, and have a beer, you know? <laughs> the Besnard Lakes are the dark horse. There's a, there's a theme running through this. I think best uh, synopsized by, by the lyric of one of your songs, you know, you've got disaster on your mind. <laughs> no two ways about it. Greg and I have been talking about this a lot this year. There have been several albums in, in 2007 about the looming apocalypse, the end of the world. Hardly cheery stuff. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think for me, for me personally, <laughs> I think it's uh, a much more memorable to hear a sad record or emotionally charged record than just like, hi, how's it going? Everything's great. I uh, love my girlfriend, which has been done a lot. You know? Sure. I think writing about sadness and uh, destruction People remember that, I think. I think if you're in, in some sense aware of what's actually happening with the world, 
you know, if you read The Onion. <laughs> <laughs> keep abreast of current events. Keep, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of dark. And there doesn't seem like there is a lot of hope. Yeah. Well, the yeah. islands in Besnard Lake are going to be under 10 feet of water. Yes. Yeah. Among other problems. Yeah. And I don't, I'll just sit myself in a canoe and let the water rise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, <laughs> but, you know, it's, um, the, the thing that's striking to me about the record, despite these kind of dark themes that are coursing through it, is the fact that there is a lot of beauty in these songs. There's a lot of power and there's a lot of beauty. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's hear a beautiful <laughs> song about tragedy. What, what do you got next? Okay. Let's do Devastation. Yeah, perfect. It's pretty tragic. That's a great song. (laughs) Pretty destructive.
song. The aptly named Devastation by the Besnard Lakes from their uh, new album, The Besnard Lakes Are the Dark Horse. In a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to be back with more of Besnard Lakes live in the studio, plus a DIJ, a Desert Island Jukebox pick from Jim DeRogatis. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're back with Besnard Lakes live in the studio, and of course that means lots and lots of guitars. Let's talk about those guitars. <laughs> so, so three guitars. You guys have a tremendous amount of electronic uh, effects on the floor in front of you. Pedal boards not seen outside of the progressive rock world of Genesis and Rush. <laughs> uh, earlier, you, you were playing Jason. We, we just came from there. There you go. Uh, p- playing some Ebo guitar that is this little magnetic plectrum that you hold against the pickups, best known, I think, probably for Bowie's Heroes, right? Uh, but it's really easy to overkill with, with so many guitars, but, but you guys are almost using them like a string section in, in terms of uh, these parts that are intertwining and working so well together. Yeah, there's lots of times when we're just on stage standing, staring at the ground, <laughs> waiting, for, <laughs> waiting for our next part to start. <laughs> how, how much of it is, uh, is you guys carefully working out what everybody's playing? How much of it's just coming together organically? I think it's probably about 50-50. There, there's lots of impro- improvisation that's happening that doesn't really happen that's not on the record that mm-hmm. we're just sort of developing as we the more more we tour the more you know the more we play live i think you have to start improvising or else it's just going to get boring you know? yeah so well you guys made the joke about staring at your shoes you know in the early 90s in the uk there was this incredible psychedelic revival of bands that the english press dubbed shoegazers because many of them were not extremely charismatic people like ride and my bloody valentine and spiritualized and slow dive uh, shoegazers because they'd stand on stage and look at their shoes all oxford educated lads that they were and be very serious and dour and make these incredible waves of sound People are saying you guys are the best shoegazer band since the shoegazers. And, and do, do you feel a kindred spirit to that and to psychedelic rock in general? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What were you going to say, Rich? No, I just, he just, you just named all my favorite bands. 
So, yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I'll take it as a compliment. Well, you know, and, and to extend it further, I mean, Devastation was recorded with this huge, I mean, there's only five people here making that sound, which is really impressive to see. And on stage, I've seen you guys do this song a few times. And I go, how are they going to pull that off with five people? You managed to do it. But when you recorded this song in the studio originally, I mean, it was quite an extravaganza, right? It was almost Phil, you know, let's, let's take it back another 20 years to Phil Spector. This is the one with the choir, right? The wall of sound with everybody, yeah. with a bunch of musicians in the, in playing in real time, correct? Yeah. Uh, you don't see many bands trying to do that sort of thing yeah. in a recording studio. These well, we have, we have a, the break glass has got like, it's like 1,500 square feet is the live room. So we have a lot of room there. So we just got three drummers, three bass players, and three guitar players all in the same room. It was kind of Augie's idea. She wanted to like recreate it. She wanted to do it the way Brian Wilson and Phil Spector did in the 60s. I think that's one of the keys to, to your success as a group, you know, uh, is the fact that you craft these incredible studio constructions, but you want to keep that immediacy. Because, you know, we all know Kevin Shields of My Bloody Valentine, we've been waiting for a follow-up to Loveless since 1991. He got this advance from Island Records. He built himself a studio, and he hasn't come out in 15 years. <laughs> you know, so, so you own this studio. The danger could be that we'd never see you guys <laughs> yeah. come out again. Yeah. But, but you, you also try to keep this edge that really comes forward live. I think we force ourselves into the immediacy because we could spend... 10 years in the studio if we wanted to it's it's our studio so we don't have a deadline so yeah it pushes us forward it gets things done quicker well you know and psychedelic rock tends to get this uh knock that it's you know it's head music it's all it's not visceral but the best psychedelic rock bands i've ever seen you know my bloody valentine you fe- felt like your head was in a grinder they were so loud and you guys get that same sort of thing when those three guitars start building and building and kevin back there is hammering away on the drums it's you know this is no way you're gonna like crawl up in the corner and smoke your bong this is like serious <laughs> head bashing music yeah i don't i and i don't i i loved seeing those bands but we're not ones to stare at the ground i, I also think a key difference is that you the vocal harmonies in this band are much more prominent yeah definitely that's the 60s influence that we're trying to pull into the the shoegaze thing you know the roy orbison the brian wilson you know. now none of you grew up in the 60s so where is that coming from? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know? it, uh, for me, it came from my dad. He was a huge Bee Gees, Brian Wilson, Roy Orbison. He loved all that growing up. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. where I got it from. Why don't you give us another song? And, and maybe set it up for us, Jason and Olga. Talk about how this tune came together, you know, um, how the parts all got added. Disaster. Um, I have this chord organ at home and I just was playing these three chords and then Steve taught me that I could transpose them in a different way. It I could told be, Jason uh, about the concept of relative minor. Yes, relative minor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, they're yeah. And he went to town with it. And then I took it to town. Squired it around uh, the city square yes, and uh, yeah. the song resulted. All yeah. right, so we're going to hear Disaster from the Besner Lakes. Baby, I'm gone. 
Disaster 
That was great. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> There's the sound of the Bezard uh, Lake swallowing up all those islands and everything else. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. It's been a real treat having you guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Whenever we can, we try to go to the desert island, and this week it is Jim DeRogatis' turn to pop a quarter in the desert island jukebox. Greg, it was a no-brainer this week. I have got to hear some of the French duo Daft Punk after they absolutely blew me away at Lollapalooza, one of the highlights of that fest. But Daft Punk's a band we've never talked about on this show. I don't know how that is. They are from France, there's two people. I'm going to slaughter their names, I'm sure. Guy Manuel de Homem Cristo and Thomas <laughs> Bangalter. They are gods in the dance underground, although hardly a household word for anybody except LCD Sound System, who paid homage in that song, and Kanye West, who sampled the track I'm going to play, Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger, for a song that's going to be on his new album, Graduation, Stronger. These guys heard what was happening in Chicago and in Detroit in the 80s in terms of the electronica and the acid house underground. They channeled that through vintage Kraftwerk, the electronic group from Germany in the 70s and 80s, and they put their own spin on it. Nothing else needs to be said. Here's Daft Punk on Sound Opinions. Greg, that's Daft Punk, a song from 2001, Harder, Better, Faster, Stronger. They're sampling, actually, their Edwin Bird song uh, with Cola Bottle Baby. Kind of kind of a neat tune. They took it somewhere completely different. What do we have next week on the show? Next week, Jim, we've got the stethoscopes back on. We are playing the Rock Doctors. We're going to help some needy music lover find some new music to, to get into. Good stuff, Greg. As always, we have some thank yous to say. Sound Opinions is produced by Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. The Besnard Lakes were recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. And... I heard that our executive producer, Southside, Tori Malatia, was kicked out of Lala for moshing. Did you get that report? Well, I heard he was inside that pyramid, that fluorescent pyramid that Daft Punk was playing. Yeah, he was the guy underneath the podium. Yeah, that was Tori.
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. Hey, how you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name and your number, and I'll get back to you. Hey, how are you doing? Sorry you can't get through. Why don't you leave your name uh, and your number, and I'll get back to you. New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg and Sound Opinions. This is Kyle from Minneapolis. I wanted to make a couple quick comments about the sh- recent shows. Uh, I want to thank you for mentioning Porcupine Tree. I'd also ask you why you haven't mentioned anything about the new Silverchair album, which is kind of blown up. Kind of goes back to why you guys didn't mention anything about the new Muse album last year. I'm not really sure if there's something uncomfortable about, you know, mentioning bands that are somewhat visible that are diving into progressive rock. Maybe, maybe not. I always get the sense on the show when Jim brings it up, Greg has wants nothing to do with it. And it always seems like there, when when you guys do mention some band that's diving in quote unquote art rock or progressive rock, it's, it's always some band that none of the prog community ever talks about. I've, I've never seen the band White Whale ever mentioned. And also, I'd, I'd also mention the fact that when you, you don't talk about that kind of stuff, you continually either kiss the ass or just cover a ton of these hip-hop and punk bands. You know, it's fine. That's your audience, I guess. I don't know. But fair is fair. I, you, got, you can't ignore the musicianship and experimental side of music, except for the last five to ten years. But I'm a big fan of the show. Thanks. Hello, this is Cindy from Plainfield. Love your show. Listen to it every week. Um, I heard your comments about Crossroads. Jeff Beck blew me away, just as he did you. One thing I was really disappointed uh, about, though, is the uh, not mentioning Tal Wilkinsfeld's wonderful performance. She wasn't even introduced, and I think she blew everyone away. She was the talk where we were sitting. I just wanted to add that. Bye. Hi, my name is Bill. I'm from Chicago, and I think you got a, in some ways a terrific program. I've bought albums based on your suggestions, like Once and the Dean and Britta album. Uh, but I got to tell you, I agree with that one caller, the woman from, I, I think the East Coast, where she went on and on about the smugness that sometimes you guys come off with. What, what's the deal with the punk rock thing? I'm just so sick to death of this crap. I'm so tired of, oh, you don't know about this band, so therefore I'm I'm cooler than you. And some of the selections of the punk rock are just awful. I mean, they're awful. So please, provide us with some good music. But uh, I do listen to the show, and I think you guys are providing uh, all of us with a service. And uh, so what I have to say about Sound Opinions, keep up, uh, for the most part, the good work. Take care. My name is Brad. I'm from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was just listening to your criticisms and comments from other listeners, and the comments from the woman that was, like, horribly brutal, I thought was hilarious. And... I thought your your show rocked. You guys are doing a great job. Take care. Bye. Yeah, I'm calling in regards to some of the negative messages that uh, you guys have been receiving. First of all, I want to say the woman that was complaining about the amount of 
punk that you guys play must must have really enjoyed last week's show where you interviewed the effigies. Everybody's got a cause. Few know what it means. In the last three weeks alone, along with the effigies, I've heard Yoko Ono, the Arcade Fire, interviewed. And I've heard past interviews with Common, Moby, members of Radiohead. So as far as her comments that you guys should be playing more of what people want to hear, I think she's totally off base. And so I think you guys do a great job, and I hope that uh, you guys don't take comments like that to heart because... That's why people turn to public radios, because they do want to hear something different. Uh, Keep up the good work. Thanks. Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.